The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. How are you today? Good. Let's imagine for a moment that you are sitting at a coffee shop or a restaurant. And you're waiting for a friend to arrive who you have scheduled this appointment with. You're going to sit down and share a lunch or a coffee together and talk about life. And all of a sudden you realize that they are late. They are five minutes late. They're 10 minutes late. And they're 15 minutes late. And all of a sudden they come in and they're dressed normally. They walk up and they say, I want to apologize for being late because on the way over here, I had a flat tire. So I had to pull off the side of the road. As I was pulling off the bad tire, one of the lug nuts rolled out into the road. I went out and got it. And I heard this honking and I turned around and a bus was coming at me. And they must have not have seen me fast enough because I got hit by the bus. And the bus driver must have not have known what he actually hit because he backed over me again. And that's why I'm late today. Now, how many of y'all would believe that, right? Yeah. You wouldn't believe that because you would say, I mean, if you got hit by a bus, you'd probably be dead. You probably wouldn't even be here. But even if you were to survive it, your, your clothes would be all torn up. You know, there would be some evidence, the fact that you got hit by a bus. You were changing a tire, you'd have grease all over you. You would look very, very different. Would you agree with me on that, right? But think about that. As ludicrous as it would be to believe that person, what James is telling us is it's just as ludicrous to believe that someone would say that they are a Christian and not have this radically transformed life. Think about this for a moment. The same's true when we come encounter Jesus and his life-changing gospel. You see, when we're hit with the full weight and the speed of God's love and his grace, we're going to look different too. We're going to look different in the way that we talk. We're going to look different in the way that we live. And so it's unimaginable that we could ever encounter the power of God's love and his grace and not be filled with that same love and grace ourselves and it not just ooze out of us all the time. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect in any stretch of the imagination, but it does mean that we will show evidence of being hit by the bus of God's love. We're never going to be the same again. There's no way to get hit with the love of God and not become a loving person yourself, or at least grow in becoming a loving person. A person that loves not out of compulsion, not out of expectation, but a love that flows from the fact that you've experienced love. And as you've experienced this divine love, that love begins to be displayed by you because you can't help but reflect that great love that you've experienced. You see, in essence, this is exactly what James is presenting to us, especially in this text we're going to look at today. To remind ourselves where we've been over the last few weeks, remember James started off this section talking about be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. James is always warning us about our mouths, right? Our mouths can be the things that deceive our hearts. Our mouths can be the things that lead us into evil. Our mouths can get us into so much trouble. So he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. But then he talks about the fact that we're not just to be hearers of the word, but we're also to be doers. So it's more than just listening. There's action that has to follow that. And that's what he tells us basically back in verses 22 through 25. Don't just be a hearer. Don't just go to Bible studies. Don't just be a person who reads your Bible. Don't be a person who just listens to sermons. Be a person who is active in what you've heard, active in your faith. And then in verses 26 through 27, 
He's going to say, make sure that when you are doing those things that flow out of your faith, that your doing is being empowered by the right source. Because that's when it's going to be pure and that's when it's going to be undefiled. So in today's text, James gives us three ways that we can see if this change is taking place in our life. Now, again, this is not an exhaustive list that James has given us. He's not saying these are the only three indicators of knowing that if you have genuine faith or not. But he gives us these three categories to think through our faith. So let's read the text again together. Chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So you see the three things right there, right? The first one is controlling the tongue. The second one is a concern for those who are helpless, the widows and orphans represent that. And the third is to avoid the impurities of the world. So James uses these three, three examples to prove a very simple point, And that is this, a transformation of the heart results in more than just doing good. Okay. So in other words, a transformation of the heart results in more than just doing good deeds. It's about growing in our relationship with Christ and our doing flows from that relationship. That's what James is focused in on here as we take the whole of what he's told us in chapter one to heart. See, it's not about being religious. It's not about being a member of a religious organization or a denomination. It's about growing in our understanding of who God is and how much he loves us and what he's done for us and how he wants the very best for us. And he's sovereign over all the circumstances of our life to guide us in those ways. If we would grow in our faith and grow in our trust of him. Think about marriage for a moment. Here's a good question to think about. Can you be married to someone and not have a relationship with that person. Now, before you answer that, think through exactly all the dynamics of that question. Can you be married to someone and not have a relationship with that person? I think the answer is probably yes. That's why we have so many marriages that end in divorce because there are people that get married, but they don't fully have a relationship with each other. So here's another question. How do you thrive in your marriage? How do you thrive in your relationship with your spouse? Well, the answer is this. You have to get to know your spouse. There has to be communication, right? I mean, people who get married and they go and live under the same roof and they just share their expenses and their money, but yet there's never communication. These are roommates. These are not people that are growing in their relationship. You grow in your relationship when you strive to understand what that person is about and what they love. You know, you go to marriage conferences and what are the books that you buy there? It's all about communication or understanding the other person. It's about the five love languages. What is the love language of your spouse and, and how do you speak love to them in a way they can understand it? What is your love language? What are their needs? So it's all about getting to know that person because we are all complex individuals, are we not? And so in a relationship, if we are growing in that, we are striving to understand. And the more that we strive to understand, that leads us to different kinds of actions, right? So I know my wife's love language, but if I am just a hearer of the word, I go, man, that's awesome. She must know that I love her. I know what her love language is. 
But if I never act on that, what good has it been for me to know it? And so this is the same thing that James is talking about. We are in this relationship with God. He has done so much to secure our salvation for us. As we enter into that faith, we strive to know him and that knowing of him should lead us to actions to display this response to this great love that he's shown to us. Are you following me? See here, Jesus doesn't want us to just follow him blindly. He doesn't want us to just be doers of the word because he said, be doers of the word, right? If we truly have experienced this relationship with Jesus, then we are going to love and we're going to care about the things that he loves and the things that he cares about. So if we have truly experienced the love and the grace of Jesus and we've entered into a relationship with him, then wouldn't it make sense that our hearts break over the same things that break his heart. That the things that he loved and cared about would be the same things that we love and care about. See, we always have to remember our condition before we came to know Christ. And that is that we were sinners and we were far from him. Our sin had separated us from God and sin separating us from God made us orphans. But God, in his great love for us, did not want us to remain orphans. And so God enacted this plan that he had from the very beginning to redeem us and to bring us back in a right relationship with him. So when we understand salvation, what James is talking about here in our actions is really resulting from what we've already experienced from God. And James is not the only one to talk about this idea of caring for the orphans because actually Paul talks about it, but he doesn't talk about it in the same way James is. James is talking about that we should respond to this great love that we've experienced by displaying it to those who are widows and orphans. But Paul reminds us that, you know what? You were an orphan before God came to you. Listen to some of these passages. Ephesians chapter one, verse five, Paul says he predestined us for, what's the word? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, again, it's so important that we understand that we were adopted by God as sons. That's not to slight you women, but it is to actually elevate you. Here's why. In Paul's day and time, women did not receive an inheritance from their father. Only sons did. The women were receiving inheritance for, with whatever man they married. And so he would receive an inheritance as a son. So when Paul says that we all are, you as a church, men and women alike, are all adopted as sons. In other words, we all get an inheritance through this adoption. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of, what's the word? Adoption. How does he say it again? as sons, adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then what? 
Heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul continues this in Galatians chapter four, verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, what does it say? Adoption as what? Over and over again, Paul comes back to this. Now, I I wanna especially highlight that passage from Ephesians because there is a story. When we talk through the book of Ephesians, I wanna remind you of some of the um, research that I uncovered. Now, this is not very well known. And so I don't know exactly where this guy got his information, but it it seems to be pretty sound, especially as Paul talks about this. And this guy said, that in the day where Paul was speaking to these people in Ephesus, that they had been so transformed by the gospel that they were in the habit of adopting children in their day and time. Now, once again, let's remember that adoption in their day and time, especially in Ephesus, but really in the Roman empire as a whole, it's a little bit different than adoption that we're familiar with here in America. That is this, when you adopted a child in that context, in that culture, that child was more your child than your blood children because you went through the court system to get them. In other words, there was a law, you could not disown an adopted child. You could disown one of your blood children. You cannot disown an adopted child, okay? That's one context of it. The other context of it was in Ephesus especially, they actually in that day and time practice a form of abortion and it was called exposure. And if you had a child that had some kind of deformity or a child that you didn't want, there was a hill in Ephesus that you could go and you could lay that child down. And the reason they called it exposure, it was a word for that translates as exposure, was that the child would eventually die from exposure, either to heat, sun, the elements, whatever it may be. But people could come by and pick up these children and take them away with them because these were unwanted children. But a lot of times the people who actually came by and took them were slave owners or slave traders that would then take whatever healthy ones they could find or ones that they felt like could at least serve some kind of purpose. They would take them and they would put them in that bondage. But what was amazing was, and the story goes that the church in Ephesus was known for going and picking these children up and actually going through the legal processes of adopting these children. And Paul is reminding them when he says to them, don't you realize you are adopted as sons? That he says, you know how you're in the practice of going and picking up those children and bringing them into your home and making them your children? Do you know why you do that? Do you know why you're motivated to do that? Because you realize that you were that child and that God came walking by one day and he picked you up and you were helpless, and you were the one who was gonna be gone into slavery or already was, and God came in and redeemed you and adopted you. And not only did you become a person who had a father, but your father is the king. That's a powerful, powerful image when you go and look at what Paul is telling them there in Ephesus. Because remember, the first century Christians were not like what we think of today. They were not people who had a lot of wealth. They were not people who had a lot of influence. Matter of fact, if they had any of that, when they began to follow Christ, they lost all of it in their day and time. 
And so these were marginalized people. These were second-rate citizens. And yet they were saying, well, we don't know why we're compelled to go and bring these children in. And Paul's saying, that's because that's what God did to you. And it's overflowing in your heart because you realize this love that you've experienced and you are turning around and you are overflowing with that same kind of love. So let's begin looking at this text today a little more closely. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is what is, the, what is the term that Paul uses there? Religious. Now we hate that word, don't we? If any of you thinks you're religious and everybody says today, right? I'm not about religion. I'm about, uh, what do we say? Relationship. That's right, right? You ever heard somebody say that? I'm not about religion. I'm about a relationship, which is true. We, we understand that, right? We're not about just religious practices. We are about having a relationship with God. And, that's right. and I think James is actually saying that same thing. But oddly enough, The word religion shows up very few times in the New Testament. And do you know James is the only writer that uses it in a positive context? Every other mention of the word, which is very few and far between, is always in a negative slant. But James, for some reason, uses it in a very positive light. Well, what does religion mean? And why do Christians have such a strong tendency to want to avoid this word, religion? Well, why shouldn't we want to be religious? Why shouldn't we want to be the kind of people who are devoted to religion? Well, often culturally used, this word is used to describe acts of devotion Okay. Now, even in James's day and time, it was used to describe actions of devotion to a deity or to a God of some sort in their culture. And, and today, I think we even talk about it in those terms. It's acts of devotion. That's a very religious person. When we say that they're very religious, what we're saying is they're very devoted to whatever it is they really, really believe in, right? And so we don't know exactly what religious practices James was referring to that his readers might've been very uh, familiar with as he uses this term. But we do know that James takes a very interesting angle here, a very unique one. And many of his readers would have been devoted to many different religious kinds of acts like praying, reading scripture, gathering together. But instead of condemning their actions, James actually questions the motivations of those actions And maybe even a different way of saying that is, what is the focus of those actions? So look how he continues after he mentions that in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So the first test of true transformation that James presents here is the bridling of the tongue. James is the only writer that uses this illustration of a bridle in connection with our speech or with the tongue. Now, what exactly is a bridle? Now, we're, we're familiar with that because we know a bridle is something that's used on a horse. I have a picture here. You know that part that goes around the horse's head. And we can look at this horse and say, why the long face? What's wrong? Well, it's probably because he has this bridle on. He doesn't like it. That's a joke you'll get later. All right. So we see this and what you notice is there is actually a a bit inside the mouth of the horse. You see where that ring is, where there's something that goes through. Now, as a horse is trained, what he learns to do is avoid the uncomfortableness of having that being pulled into his jaw. 
So if he wants to do his own thing, he's like fighting it. And the, and the writer will pull on that and it causes a little bit of discomfort. And the, the point is he finally ends up learning, you know what, it's better just to turn my head this way. And a horse typically is gonna go wherever they're looking, right? So the horse is like, I don't really like those. Okay, I'm gonna go this way. But for the longest time, the horse will fight that, right? As they're being trained, being tamed. So think about this. James is comparing a man's tongue to a wild horse that can be out of control unless it is properly tamed, properly controlled. Now, I think this is the key right here. It's not that the bridle controls the horse. Think about this. The rider controls the horse. The bridle is just the tool that the rider uses to train the horse, to lead the horse in the direction that is best for that horse, right? And usually best for the rider as well. So, so the bridle and the bit that James is talking about is the word of God. The word of God is the bit in the mouth of the horse. And the bit is only good, listen to me, if it's controlled by a rider. You can put that thing on a horse and let it go. That horse is gonna do whatever it wants to do. It doesn't care that there's something in there. The only thing that makes it active and makes it powerful is that a rider is there knowing how to train and knowing that they're gonna be patient with this horse and giving the time and energy to train this horse in the ways that are best for the horse and rider. And so when James talks about the word of God, he's always basing it in this idea of a relationship, even this right here. Guess what? You will never be able to tame your own tongue. Even if you have the word of God, the word of God is not powerful enough to tame your tongue without a relationship with God. But as we have a relationship with God, the word of God becomes that bit in our mouth that begins to control those passions and desires and begins to control even our speech. See, the, the bridle and bit is something that God uses, the word of God. When the word of God is active and alive, it becomes a means for us to understand God. It becomes a means for us to be led in the directions of the will of God, the will that he has for our lives. It becomes a bit in our mouth so that he can use it to lead us in the paths that he has desired sovereignly for our lives to follow. You see, our continual failure to control our tongue is actually a sign that the inner life change has not taken place. What does that mean? We have the word of God, but we're never actually able to live it out. Why? Because there's no writer. There's no trainer. There's no relationship. James says that this man who is religious, but does not control his tongue, is only deceiving himself and his religion that he is so intent on practicing is actually worthless. Did you see that? Worthless. Well, James is talking about, number one, we can deceive ourselves by being very spiritual, right? Oh, you know what? I've, I've been in the Word today. I've been memorizing the whole book of James. That's great, but how you been living? You know what I'm saying? Now, I, I do kind things for me. What happens is we will talk ourselves into believing that we are very good people. We will talk ourselves into realizing, you know what? I may not be perfect, but I'm better than that guy. Our mouths will deceive us. 
why is this kind of religion worthless? Why does he say that it's worthless? Well, it's worthless because of what it produces. That kind of religion produces nothing. It produces nothing because it lacks the true transformation. And because it lacks that true transformation, it is just another form of, listen to me, worthless idol worship that James's hearers were so familiar with with their pagan neighbors, right? So the word worthless is actually a translation of a Greek word that's often used in scripture to characterize idolatry as vain and meaningless. So I know that James is making this connection here. It's used over and over again in the New Testament like that. So by using this word, James is actually telling us that if we can't control our tongues, our religion is no better than idolatry. Think about this for a moment. What is idolatry? Well, when we look at it from a biblical point of view, what we know is worshiping an idol is empty and it's meaningless because the focus of the worship is just this dead, cold, lifeless object. And James says, so too is Christian religion empty and meaningless if there's not an inner working of the spirit of God connected with that service. You see, a living religion is a life-changing force. A living religion is a life-changing force within us. And look how James continues in verse 27. Religion that is, he's making a contrast here. You see this, right? He's already told us there's one religion that's dead. It's idolatry. It's worthless. 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now James moves on to this, this contrast, right? Of this false religion to this one that is pure and undefiled, as he says right here in verse 27. It's very interesting that James does not condemn religion, but instead he insists that that religion, which again, remember when we're using that term religion, we're talking about these acts of devotion. He says that these, this religion or these acts of devotion should be united with an inner transformation. I like how one author said, he says, James accepts the need for religion, but insists that religious observance must unite the inner and outward effects of the gospel. Do you see that? The inward and the outward expressions of the gospel. The inward expressions of the gospel are the transformation and that longing to know God more and for him to know me. The longing for me to understand what does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean to have an inheritance? I wanna know, I wanna read the word of God. I can't get enough of this. I wanna learn, I wanna grow. I wanna be around other people that are passionate about that as well. I want, but then all of a sudden there's an outward transformation too. It's not just happening inside my heart and my soul and my mind. It's not just me growing and understanding, but also the way I see the world, the way I see people, people that I used to criticize and condemn. Now, all of a sudden I realize they are made in the image of God, just like I am. They have value and worth just as much as I do. And now my attitude towards them has completely changed. And when I see someone who is being slighted and they're in the image of God, that breaks my heart. Why? because it breaks the heart of God. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. Now notice what he says right there. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, how does he qualify God? 
What's the word? The Father. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans who have no father and widows who have no husband in their affliction. So James is painting this picture for us that he wants us to accept. What was true spiritually has to be true for us physically. Again, James isn't given this, this exhaustive list here of what we need to do for the outward transformation, but he is using this as an example of what it means to be a doer of the word. And the first thing he tells us there is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, in the Greek language, the word visit is a loaded term. It has many different meanings. It can actually mean to look upon. It can mean to consider, to have regard for, or to something or someone. So I think it's very intentional the way James actually words this. A simple, friendly, social call, James says, does not embody this idea of a true undefiled religion. Also, it's not just taking care of the person's need without sitting with them and listening to them and empathizing with them. He says that this pure and undefiled religion is when I actually enter into a relationship with that person and I feel their pain and I feel it to the point that I say, you know what, I cannot leave you with this pain. I've got to help you take this pain and I'm going to help you shoulder this pain and we're going to walk together with that. It's not just coming and listening to them and sympathizing, going, man, that must be tough. But I have a one o'clock appointment, so I will see you next week. That sounds cold, doesn't it? Man, I hate that you're in that situation. Hey, but I spent some time with you and I listened to your story. It's also not this, sitting in a place like this where a pastor gets up and tells you about someone's condition. You go, man, that's rough. Here's $10, give it to them for me. That's not the religion either. Why? Because that's distant. Yeah, I might be taking care of their needs. I might provide a meal for them one day, but it's not empathizing with them. I'm gonna walk out and focus back on my life and I'm gonna go away with my guilt, guilty conscience forgiven for a moment at least, right? James says a pure and undefiled religion is this. Listen to me. It's to imitate what God the Father did with you. God the Father didn't just look at you and go, oh, I need to take care of that and then forgive you of your sins and then just leave you be. And God the Father didn't come down and go, man, must be tough to be a sinner. That's a bad situation. All right, I got some angels over here that wanna worship me, I'll see y'all later. No, I mean, as, as ridiculous as that sounds to think of God that way, it's ridiculous to think of a Christian that way. And somehow that we can just connect and not take care of a need or that we can take care of a need and not wanna connect. No, those two things go hand in hand. Why? Because that's exactly what God did for us. Matter of fact, in the Septuagint, this same word that he uses here about visiting the widows and the orphans is the same word that says God visited Sarah when she was barren. It's the same word that says that God visited Bethlehem in the book of Ruth that we just studied when they were having a famine and he came and took care of the famine. It's also the same word in Luke 7, 16, 
that the people used after Jesus had raised from the dead, listen to me, a widow's son. And said, surely God has visited us. Jesus felt and he acted on what he felt. That is pure and undefiled religion. And we are called to nothing less. See, how do we know if our religion is pure and undefiled? Well, we will know that when we will have this genuine concern for and this intentional personal contact with the people in need. We will visit them. We will look after them. We will care for them. We will have compassion for them. You see, this concern is more than just an act of charity or benevolence. It's not just random acts of kindness. It's more than just isolated acts of compassion. It is truly about seeing those individuals differently than we used to see them before we knew Christ as our savior. And James mentions orphans and widows, but that's not exclusive because orphans and widows are representative of the two most needy classes of James's day. The Mosaic law required the Israelites to take care of widows and orphans and not to take advantage of them. And also in taking care of the widow and orphans in Psalm 68, five, it says this, the people of Israel were to imitate God himself. What is God? A father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. I think James had this verse in mind, don't you? Somehow what he's calling us to do is not some dead ritual ceremony that we do to rid our conscience of guilt but it's something that we've seen God do. And because we've seen God do, we wanna be just like him because he's done this for us. And so we wanna be a representative of that kind of love, that kind of compassion and that kind of grace in our world. Have you ever heard of a man by the name of George Mueller? Many of you, if you've studied church history, you've probably heard of him. If you've studied missions, you've heard of him. George Mueller was actually born in Germany in 1805, but he spent most of his long life because he died in 1898, at the age of 92, he spent the majority of that life in Bristol, England. Now, Mueller passed or pastored the same exact church for more than 66 years. I, I, I've been here for 15. I don't know how he did it for 60. I'm just kidding, right? So when he was 28, he actually founded what was called the Scripture Knowledge Institute for Home and Abroad. That sounds like a very technical term, right? But listen to this. This is why. There were five branches of that institute whose purpose were to develop schools to teach Bible knowledge, number one, Bible distribution, number two, missionary support. They had track and book distribution. And lastly, it was the boarding and the clothing of orphans and their education. This institute had incredible success across every one of the branches. But if you know anything about Mueller, what you know about him is this. The greatest accomplishment of all of those was his orphan ministry. Over the course of his life, he built five large orphan houses and cared for more than 10,000 orphans. When he started the institute in 1834, there was only enough room for 3,600 orphans in all of England, all of England. More than twice that many children under the age of eight found themselves in prison because they had nowhere else to go and no one to care for them. They had no parents. 
But running this institute and orphan ministry was not the only calling that this man had. Matter of fact, he did all of this while also preaching three times a week. He spent 17 years doing missionary work, traveling to 42 different countries and reaching more than 3 million people. It has been calculated that by the end of his life, Mueller preached more than 10,000 times. Now, here's the thing. On top of that, add to it the stress that he felt like God said, you're just to go out there and be my arms and my mouth and my feet, but I don't want you to ever ask anybody for money. And there are many times, if you go and read his biography, there are many times they were sitting there and they had no food to feed these orphans. And they said, you know what? We just got to go to God and ask him. And miraculously, people would drop by food or drop by money for the support of these orphanages. He never asked one person ever in his ministry to donate to any of these missionary efforts. He said, God is the one who's the father and he knows how to take care of his children. Therefore, we need to go to him, not to people They're not very good at taking care of their children. That's why we have all these orphans. Wow. Think about this for a moment. How did he stay sane in the midst of all of that? Here's how. He found the best way to deal with life was to immerse yourself in God's word. When he was 71 years old, this is exactly what Mueller said to his students. And I'm quoting. Now in brotherly love and affection, I would give a few hints to my younger fellow believers as to the way in which to keep up spiritual enjoyment. It is absolutely needful in order that happiness in the Lord may continue that the scriptures be regularly read. These are God's appointed means for the nourishment of the inner man. Consider it and ponder over it. Especially we should read regularly through the scriptures consecutively and not picking out here and there from that chapter. If we do, we remain spiritual dwarfs. I tell you so affectionately. For the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now I have been doing this for more than 47 years. I have read through the whole Bible about a hundred times and I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus my peace and joy have increased more and more. You see, by the time Mueller died 21 years later after writing this, He supposedly had read his Bible end to end almost 200 times. He also saw the value of scripture. He had implanted it in his heart. He was not just a hearer or a reader of the word. He was a doer of the word. And he was not just a doer out of religious compulsion, but he was a doer because his heart had been changed. So so James says that this implanted word in us will cause a heart change. And that heart change will cause us to see our society differently than we ever did before. The implanted word will motivate us to action and not just any kind of action. It is a sincere action. And that action will have as its focus widows and orphans, but not just widows and orphans. Because again, remember, this is not an exhaustive list. It will also have as its focus immigrants trying to adjust to a new life. It will have as its focus impoverished third world dwellers 
the handicapped, the homeless. And then the third test, I think, is connected to the second one. He goes on and he says, to know whether this genuine faith you have is real and this religious practice that you engage in is genuine and undefiled is that the word being the foundation of that life is going to be a person who remains unstained from the world. You see, the importance of this is to balance, I believe, social concern with social purity. Here's why. If you begin to minister to the neglected of the society, listen to me, you'll have an opportunity to also take advantage of them. You will have an opportunity to be tainted by them. You'll have an opportunity, and let's remember what causes these situations, a lot of times it's sin. And a lot of times it's the sin that the person's involved in. And if you're not careful as you go to reach these people, you will fall into the same traps that got them into those situations. Or you'll begin to hear their stories and doubt God. So a true religion is this, to be able to engage the world in all of the sin infestedness of it and yet not be tainted by that sin. Does it mean we're always gonna be perfect? No. Does it mean there's gonna be times that we're gonna to have to go and repent? Absolutely. But James reminds us of this because our goal is a pure and undefiled religion. Our goal is just not to take care of the social ills of the world. Our goal is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ because we can take care of physical needs for a long time, but the spiritual needs is what really needs to be focused in on, right? See, we're to be like Christ in all that we do, living in this world, but not of the world. Being unstained or spotless is a Greek word that actually, and this is what one author says, it depicts a condition of personal purity that remains unblemished from contact without surrounding pollution. So when he talks about the idea that we are unstained, it's that we are engaging the world, but we are not bringing in the sin of the world into our own life. You see, this is what it means to be obedient to the word and to live out the faith that, have, that has changed us and given us a regenerated heart. James insists upon this, right conduct that results from a right relationship with God through the transforming word of God. Sympathy with suffering and separation from sin demonstrate the operation of living faith in the heart. You see, John Piper recently came out with a list of 12 questions to think about before watching any show or any movie that has nudity in it. Now, the reason he did this was because in one of his pastor forums, he got asked the question, what do you think about people who watch these very popular shows that you can watch on Netflix and other places? In particular, they were asking about some show called The Game of Thrones. I don't know how many of you have seen it. I have not, but apparently it's a show that you can watch on Netflix and it has a lot of nudity in it. And they said that, you know what, it's about a culture. It's about, it's depicting something and that's a part of it. So, you know, you can separate yourself from it. So what do you respond? How do you say that? And he gave this great list. Listen to this list. He said, here are all the questions you should ask before you ever watch, not just that show, but any show that has any kind of nudity in it. Number one, am I re-crucifying Christ by watching this? Number two, 
Does it ex- advance or express my holiness? Number three, when will I tear out my eye if not now? Number four, is it not satisfying to just think on what's honorable? Number five, am I longing to see God? Number six, do I care about the souls of these people that I'm watching? Number seven, would I be glad if my daughter played this role? Number eight, am I assuming that nudity and sexuality can be faked? Number nine, am I compromising the beauty of sexuality? Number 10, am I assuming nudity is necessary for good art? Number 11, am I craving acceptance? And number 12, am I free from doubt? See, I think he ended with that one because if you're even asking the question, you don't need to be watching it. If there's a question in your mind of, is this of God and should I do this? Then no, it's it's wrong for you. Why? Especially for you because... Paul tells us anything that's not done in faith is sin. If there's questions in your mind of whether you're acting out of faith because God told you to do it, that's already sin. It doesn't matter what the activity is. You see, what are we doing that's keeping us from being unstained from the world? What are we watching that we should not be watching? What compromises are we making? After all, this kind of content, we tell ourselves, it's not pornography, right? Or do we tell ourselves that we can watch it without being bothered by it? And even if it's the case that we can somehow look at nudity and sexuality in television and not sin, how is it we are keeping ourselves unstained from the things that we're watching? Are we separating ourselves from the world by doing these types of things? You see, false religions focus on works, do they not? They believe that works can achieve something. If you're good enough and your good outweighs your bad, then you're gonna be on the right track. False religions focus on that. False religion is man trying to reach God. False religion is trying to do whatever you can to be right with God, to make sure that at the end of your life, you are accepted. Legalism even falls into this category. For a legalistic Christian, it's all about what you do or what you don't do. You go to church enough, you read your Bible enough, you pray enough, You do enough, you give enough, you outreach enough, and you're a good person. All the while, you have to balance that with what you don't do. You don't drink too much alcohol. You don't listen to certain kinds of music. You don't dress a certain way. And what happens is that legalism, what happens is we live with almost this fear-based mentality. They know that they don't wanna go to hell, so they're gonna do whatever they can to make sure that their good outweighs their bad so they can go to heaven. However, the gospel tells us that this is not how we are to live. This is about what Christ has already done for us, not what we're doing. You see, if if it's works-based, then it's all about us earning something. But the gospel says it is works not to achieve something, but because something's already been achieved. Do you see the difference in those two? See, the gospel tells us that life is not about trying to reach God, but it's that God has reached out to us. And the gospel reminds us that there is nothing we could do that could ever make God love us any more than he already does. And there is nothing that we have ever done that can make him love us any less. But the gospel doesn't deny the importance of good works. It just changes the order in which they come. Do you see that? 
True religion is the good works that follow the heart change that Christ has worked in us that we could never do for ourselves. It involves both personal purity. It also involves social justice, which people often try to separate and set at opposition against each other. There are many people that are all about holiness, all about purity, but they never lift a finger to help the poor. On the flip side of it, there are so many people who have rejected a biblical understanding of holiness and purity, but they're all about social justice. And the gospel tells us that we are to be a people who pursue purity and social justice faithfully and purposefully because this is the desire of Christ. Take care of the widows and the orphans. Stay unstained from the world. Bridle that tongue and you are now embracing what the scripture calls a religion that is undefiled. It's not man-based, it's God-based. It's not action-based, it's faith-based because of what God's already done. What are you doing in your life that is evidence of this kind of genuine faith? How has your transformation in your heart changed the way you think and act? Let's pray together. God, thank you for a word that reminds us that we should always be reflecting on our heart condition. Lord, we should always be reflecting on what it is that you are challenging us with from your word because we are so susceptible to just focusing on the word and not focusing on that relationship. Or we are susceptible to just going out and being representatives without grounding ourselves in the truth of why we are representative. And so God, the difficulty for us lies in the simplicity of your gospel, that it is about us having a relationship with you and that relationship with you overflowing into our relationship with others and how we see the world. Jesus, you answered it best. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? Anyone who has a need, you told us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so God, I just pray that you would make these things real to us. Don't allow us to be hearers of your word today and not follow out and be doers. Help us to reflect on the truth of this and may it change us from the inside out. And we ask this in the powerful sovereign name of Jesus, our Lord, amen.